Thank you all for being here on this on this glorious Sunday. It's good to be together in this wonderful sacred space once again. It's good to see you. It's good to be learning more and more of your names and becoming more and more part of this community and uh, grateful for all your kindness and all your welcomes. Last Sunday I thought was a great day for us, the picnic, and, uh, the promotion Sunday. Things keep happening around here that show me more and more the strengths of this church. And uh, it's exciting to see those and to learn of those and to uh, hopefully become a part of those as we continue to follow where God leads us. Thank you for uh, all the great things that happened. Uh, There was a job fair this past week. There was the fish fry last night. There's so much, so many lives being touched, so many folks being honored. And thank you for for allowing uh, Mickey and me to be a part of that. I want to continue with our series from Matthew's Gospel, Messages That Matter from the Mind of Matthew. And looking back at last week when we talked about how Jesus looked out on, on the crowd of folks there and had compassion. And that passage, that message has come back to me more than once, especially over these past few days as we observe on television and our computer monitors and elsewhere those things that have been going on in our nation and the difficulties and the troubling times and the harsh words and the violence. And when you look out on a crowd of folks, it just reminded me of how difficult it is sometimes to look out and have compassion, as Jesus did. It's easy for me to become resentful or, or look for somewhere to place the blame, and then there's plenty of blame to be placed. To become angry and uh, confused, but have to remember our Lord calls us to be compassionate and reminds us that that's not always easy. That's not easy, but by the grace of God, we move forward. So that that passage was on my mind all week, and... uh, the events of the week, I, I wanted to, to say just a word and pray that we'll continue to seek God's direction and uh, learn to have compassion on all God's children. The passage for today picks up where we left off last week. We're in Matthew's Gospel, of course, chapter 14, and I want to begin with verse 22. So I would ask you, as you're able, to stand for the reading of the Holy Gospel. Matthew 14:22 and following. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Can you recall any of those times in your earlier life when you were sent somewhere for the first time, sent by a parent perhaps, sent out without a parent, without a sibling to go with you? First time being entrusted with a mission on your own. May have been as close and simple as walking next door to borrow a cup of sugar or flour or cornmeal. It may have been as simple as getting in the car and driving across town for the first time by yourself to pick up the dry cleaning. Among the good feeling that comes with the excitement, the being trusted for the first time to do something, there's usually some fear and trepidation that gets mixed into that equation as well. What if I dropped a cup? What if I have an accident on the way over there and it's my fault? But most of the time we've been well taught. We've seen other folks do these tasks and we figure, well, I can handle this. I remember when my folks were teaching me how to drive, they would often ask me questions about situations that might arise or things that were going on or things I should be observing around me. And I remember one day my mother asking me, she said, if you had a choice between hitting a moving car or a parked car, which one would you hit? And I said, the moving car. (laughs) And she said, no, why'd you say that? I said, well, you'd have to be a real loser to hit a parked car. (laughs) uh, A few years ago, I came out of the house to go to a a meeting. And my daughter-in-law's car was parked behind mine. And and I made a mental note. (laughs) Aaron's car is back there, my daughter-in-law's car. Don't bump into it. (laughs) And I did. And uh, like it was never there. Today's gospel lesson, for the first time, in Matthew's gospel anyway, the first time that Matthew tells the story, Jesus sends the disciples out without him. Out on their own. They've got something to do and somewhere to go. The Jesus who represents God with us, but they don't seem to remember that. That earlier passage in Matthew chapter 1, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But somehow they had forgotten, unless he was physically there, they they were afraid. And they were out in the boat, out on the lake. And Jesus was alone by himself. That's the way the text reads, alone by himself. It sounds a little redundant, but the point is made. And the disciples are far from land. Oddly enough, this is also the first time in John's go- in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is praying. We assume Jesus prayed. He was God, but he also prayed to his Father. He was dependent on, on God. And so the disciples out in the boat, and this boat slash church symbolism has endured for all of these centuries. Matthew's gospel, remember, was being written to take the words of Jesus and use those words to direct and instruct and inspire and encourage the early church. 
And so that symbolism stuck. When Matthew talked about the boat and talked about disciples in a boat, he was speaking to the church and speaking of the church, the boat on the water in this world. And so that's, that's some of what was going on here. Now this boat church symbol, it has stuck across the years. There is an old spiritual, and it's in our hymnals. It is the old ship of Zion. Get on board, get on board. It has landed many a thousand. It was good for my mother. It was good for my father. It's the same tune that some of us know as give me that old time religion, but it's a great old spiritual. And it makes very clearly that point that the church is represented often in scripture and across the years as a boat, as a ship. And I want us to keep that in mind as we think about this, this story for today. The picture painted by this story, a boat story is what it is, is not just about the church or a boat or a ship. In biblical thought, biblical literature, the sea always represented the unknown. It was frightful. It represented chaos. There were references in Scripture. There are references to sea monsters. Folk in that day thought the sea was bottomless. They would be out on the great sea, the Mediterranean, and drop the anchor and never reach the bottom. And there were no Jacques Cousteau documentaries or other things to tell them what was down there. So they were, they were frightened of the sea. And in a part of the world that we've come to call the Holy Land, it's interesting, or it is to me, that nowhere else in the world, in such a small area, are there four seas that impact the life and impact the stories that are told, and certainly have an impact on the gospel story as are found in that area. And each of those seas, strangely enough, has a different degree of salinity about it. Three of these seas rhyme in English. There's the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and the Med Sea, or the Mediterranean Sea. And the fourth is the Sea of Galilee. In Hebrew, there was only one word for a still body of water. There were other words that had to do with living water, flowing water, the grace of God. But for a body of water, only one word. So sometimes it was called the Sea of Galilee, and sometimes it was called Lake Genesaret. But it it's, was called a sea. We're thinking of it as a sea for our purposes today. So uh, if you'll bear with me for a moment or two, I want to say a word about each of these seas because the sea plays such a prominent role in this story and in the Gospels, and in the whole biblical narrative over and over again. One, the Mediterranean Sea is along the coast of Israel. Its salt or salinity is about 3.7%, similar to the Atlantic Ocean. The Mediterranean was called the Great Sea. Folks were afraid of big creatures in the Great Sea. Whales would occasionally come in from Gibraltar. And you might notice in the Old Testament there is reference from time to time to Leviathan, to the sea monster. Might have been one of these whales that people had not seen before. Now, in the Old Testament, all of the Ite people, and that is all of those folks whose names end in the ITE, and, and there were many of them, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Amalekites, and the Israelites, they were all desert people. And they feared the sea, called it a trackless place, and it frightened them. And if one ship goes down, you sink forever in a bottomless, trackless place. And all of that, I believe, is behind that passage in Revelation 21.1 
that sometimes folk say, well, what does that mean? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There was no more evil. There was no more chaos. The sea was no more. That great promise from the visionary who wrote the book of Revelation. Now, two was the Red Sea, and it touches Israel on the south, the tropical area. Corals and wonderful aquatic life in the Red Sea. 4.2% salt. And in Hebrew, it's called Yom Suf, which means the Sea of Reeds. And in the Old Testament, it's often called the Red Sea. And we all remember that story of Moses and the children of Israel and, and the way they passed through the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. And then there was the Dead Sea, 32% salt. And folks in that day called it the Salt Sea, not the Dead Sea. Now, at stewardship time in the fall, I want to talk more about the Dead Sea, but I can't help it today. I've got to mention this just for a moment. The reason the Dead Sea is dead primarily is because there's no outlet, which says we need to think carefully about receiving and receiving and receiving and never giving. But enough about that for the moment. We'll, we'll get back to that. And then four is the Sea of Galilee, the only freshwater sea in the world below sea level. 23 varieties of fish in the Sea of Galilee, approximately 7 miles by 12 miles, and it played a huge role in the stories in the New Testament. Jesus' ministry, so much of it happened around the Sea of Galilee. It was very, very important, and it figures into our story for today. Now, the whole notion of the sea being a place of fear, frightful, a place of chaos, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, when God created the heaven and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep of the waters. And then a wind, a breath, a spirit of God blew over the face of the earth. Many references in the psalm to the sea and God's control over the sea and how only God could, could control the sea. Everyone else was afraid and frightened. Psalm 18, then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your breath. And then the first three verses of Psalm 69, and this has to do with today's gospel lesson. Save me, O God, the psalmist cried out, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And Maybe that's where we first had the expression or similar expressions when we find ourselves in trouble and we talk about being in deep waters. Psalm 107, even more direct, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress he made the storm be still, and the waves were hushed. Sounds like our story today, and, and believe it or not, we're, we're getting there. The book of Job in the Old Testament, chapter 38, and you might want to read this for yourself when you get a moment, toward the end of the book, the first 11 verses, Job has been cornered by God. And God is calling Job to account, and he's got some hard things to say to him. And he's asking him, Job, where were you? 
When I laid the foundations of the world, tell me if you know so much. Also, Job, let me know this. Where were you when I said to the sea, come this far and no farther? When I set boundaries on the mighty waves, where were you, Job? And out of that passage grew the hymn that we're going to close this service with today. It's, it's known as the naval hymn, Eternal Father, Strong to Save. My dad was a Navy guy, and it was his, one of his favorite hymns, and we sang it at his memorial service, and it's a, an emotional hymn for me, but it, it tells that story about who is in charge of the wind and the waves. Who controls these things? Only God. In the biblical mind, being on the sea is a threat. It represents darkness and chaos and evil, the place, the abode of all the demonic spirits. That's what the sea was. It was a frightful, frightful place. To be at sea evoked images in their minds of death and darkness and destruction, hatred, all of those things. And the sea in our lesson for today even becomes a barrier that separates the disciples in the boat from Jesus who is away in a time of prayer. In the midst of the chaos of the world, they're left alone in the boat or in the ship. The waves and the wind threatening this fragile craft, this small boat. And that's all that preserved them from the threat of the wind and the waves. Well, if we go under, we'll be forgotten. Conflict and persecution, all of those images are represented in Scripture by the sea. And when we think about the trouble in our world today and the brokenness and the hostility and the hatred, it reminds us of the sea and the chaos. Yet Jesus comes, comes to the boat on the water, in the latest and darkest time of the night. The New International Version calls it the fourth watch of the night. That would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. And when we read and hear this story, we think of, we think in our day, I think, of defying the power of gravity. Somebody walked on the water. What's up with gravity? In the biblical mind, they don't think so much of that. They think of one who walks on the sea, one who conquers the chaos and the evil. That's what they're hearing. To walk on something is to conquer it or conquest it. The sea, the anti-creation, the sea monsters, the evil, to walk on the sea was to overcome all of those things. And in biblical thought, only God walks on the sea. Now, we, we come to that feature of the story that's most recognizable for most of us. But let me back up just a second. This walking on the sea stuff and Jesus being, being the image of God, being the representative, Jesus being God, doing what only God can do. And when he walked on the water, they had to make this connection. No one can calm the sea and walk on the sea but God. And Jesus, as he approached, it's not a ghost, he said, it is I. It is I. I believe Matthew is trying to emphasize the presence of Christ with the church in the chaotic world 
on our mission to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to all people. I believe that's exactly where he's going with all of this. Now, the part of the story that we usually go to, let me say that that might often be in our minds a misrepresentation. Maybe we've misunderstood a little bit of that. And let me say that with the knowledge that this may cause me to get thrown under the church bus, but I'll, I'll take that chance. <coughs> Peter, in this story, should not be armchair psychologized. We don't need to figure out what led to his impetuous behavior. That's really, I don't think, the point here. Jesus, Peter addresses Jesus as a believer would. First, he says, Lord. He shows all the respect that Jesus is due, that, that Jesus is Lord. And then he sees the violence of the storm, and he begins to sing. And for Peter, the whole problem was not that he took his eyes off Jesus. We've always heard that, and I think that's part of what's going on here. He wanted proof of the presence of Christ, so he left the boat in the first place. Peter cried out, save me. And Jesus stretched out his hand and rescued Peter and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And the Greek word for doubt here means vacillation and not skepticism. Peter's response, Lord, if it is you, to Jesus reassuring it is I, is according to one scholar reminiscent of the temptation story. You remember that? Matthew's gospel earlier on, chapter 4 and Verse 3, and along there, the, the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, do this, do this, do this. Planting that, that seed of doubt. If, if. Jesus is the one who makes God present to us. That's the claim. And it's almost like Peter is saying, if. If you are the Christ, command me to step out of this boat and come to you on the water. Prove it, Lord. Prove it to me. And in a chaotic world where such a claim seems hollow or meaningless that Jesus is Lord, where is our faith? Do we believe that? Is there a spectacular reassurance or can we know that day to day as our life goes on? Peter knows that Jesus has been left back on the beach. Just like in the church sometimes, and in our walk of faith, we act like Jesus is back on the beach. And we're out here on our own. And that's not good. In both cases, it's clearly impossible, we think, that he would come to us. So when he appears walking on the sea, it should be good news, if it could possibly be true. But what does Peter do? He wants to put Jesus to the test. And what does it say in the temptation story elsewhere in Scripture? You shall not tempt, you shall not test the Lord your God. And, and that appears to be what Peter is doing here. He's testing God. Jesus responds with the one word, granting of permission, come. But the initiative was with Peter. And it was an initiative grounded in a lack of faith and putting God to the test. So the typical lesson derived from this text often borders on a misunderstanding of faith, I believe, which Matthew wants to warn us against. The message is not if he had had enough faith, he could have walked on the water and not sunk. 
Just as the message to us is not, if we had enough faith, we could overcome all the hard stuff and all the difficult stuff and all the evil that we encounter in this world and everything would be all right. This interpretation, I believe, is wrong in that it identifies faith, faith with spectacular exceptions to the ins and outs of the laws of daily life, the laws of, of gravity and the physics and biology. It's wrong because our notions of this are shattered all the time by accident and disease and illness and other tragedies. Those things happen. And we put ourselves in that place saying if we only had enough faith, we could have stopped that. We could have gotten around that. And I believe this passage is telling us, look at it differently. Because when our notions of overcoming these laws are, are shattered then sometimes our faith is shattered too. What if the message of our passage was, if he, Peter, had had enough faith, he would have believed the word of Jesus and he would not have gotten out of the boat to start with. Faith is not being able to walk on water. Only God can do that. Who do we think we are? But faith is... In the face of all the contrary evidence, believing that Jesus will come to us on the sea, in the chaos, in the darkness, in the evil, that he still comes to the boat, still comes to his church, will not leave us abandoned and battered by the storms and the waves. Not that we've got to get out of the boat and walk on the water, that's his job. Our job is to remain faithful, to believe that he comes to us. The story ends, Peter and Jesus climb back into the boat, and the others who are in the boat, the other disciples, worship and praise God, and they are amazed. And the conclusion reflects the response of a grateful church, that across the years, in difficult times, when folks have turned from us and doubted our message, and we've felt no power to deal with the hurt and the heartache in the world, Jesus still comes to us. And fills us and empowers us. That's where our strength is. We are not alone. We have not been orphaned. Now, with this particular passage of scripture, if we're not careful, it's easy to miss the boat. So, perhaps the message for us, here at Newland First United Methodist Church, on August the 13th, 2017, Perhaps the message is that Jesus still comes to his church. In good times and in difficult times, in times of smooth sailing and in times of great turbulence, Jesus still comes to his church. And often it takes more faith and more courage to stay in the boat than it does to abandon the ship. Amen.